Chapter 8 of Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. India Religious Societies Beside me lies a paper preserved among other documents of Simeon's life which carries us from Cambridge and England to his work for India. On the outside he has written, Address to me from India relative to a mission to Calcutta, September 1787. It merely shows how early God enabled me to act for India, to provide for which has now for 41 years been a principle and an incessant object of my care and labour. I used to coastly to call India my diocese. Since there has been a bishop, I modestly call it my province. The paper is a letter or memorial to the young man of 28. Reverend Sir, from the enclosed papers you will learn the project of a mission to the East Indies. We understand such matters lie very near to your heart, and that you have a warm zeal to promote their interest. Upon this ground we take the liberty to invite you to become agent on behalf of the intended mission at home. We are much concerned that the missionaries sent out to this country may be of the right sort. A subsistence equal to fifty pounds per annum in England is all that is held out to them. We therefore hope they will not propose to themselves great earthly emoluments, that their reward may be great in heaven. Should there be a disposition in the higher powers to embrace the scheme, perhaps it would be advisable to have some chosen men in readiness to offer themselves to engage in the work, which might prevent improper applications. Any new matter that may occur to us upon the subject will be transmitted to you by the next ships. Accept, dear sir, our best wishes for your success. Our prayer will be continually offered up for a rich blessing upon this and every other work in which you may be engaged for the furtherance of the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, Reverend Sir, your most obedient and humble servants, D. Brown, Minister at the Orphan House, William Chambers, Charles Grant, and for George Undy of the Company's Civil Service. Calcutta, September 1787. David Brown of Magdalen, a few years Simeon's junior and his friend, had gone out to Bengal as chaplain in 1786. In 1794 he was appointed chaplain to the presidency, and in 1800 provost of the College of Fort William, and he died in 1812, the year of the death of his beloved Indian colleague Henry Martin, leaving a memory bright with consistent goodness and able and unwearied labour for his lord. The three other signatories were all distinguished civilians, early members of that long succession of Christian administrators which has thrown the light of godliness on many passages of the history of British India. Mr. Grant, of whom more will be said later, was father of Charles and Robert Grant, second and third wranglers when Martin was senior, men afterwards illustrious in Indian annals as Lord Glenelg and Sir Robert Grant. The scheme was the establishment of two missionaries at Benares. The proposed salary for each was raised later to £150. This was not the first effort by Englishmen for the conversion of India. Already in 1658 the directors of the East India Company recorded their desire by all possible means to propagate the gospel in those parts. In 1677 they sent out a schoolmaster who was to instruct native children with others in the Protestant religion. The Charter of 1698 provided that the chaplains of garrisons and factories should learn the native language, the better to instruct in the Protestant religion the gentus that shall be servants or slaves of the company or of their agents. 
Early in the 18th century, the first Protestant missionaries, Lutherans, sailed from Denmark. They were supported in England by the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. In 1750, the apostolic Schwartz landed in southern India, and when he died in 1798, the East India directors placed his statue by Flaxman in the chief church at Madras. The epitaph set forth his missionary labours, and they ordered its purport to be circulated in the country languages. Clive himself, in 1758, invited to Bengal its first Protestant missionary, Kianandia. But when the memorial to Simeon was sent from Calcutta, Lord Cornwallis was Governor-General, and he was lukewarm at best. He had no faith in such schemes. And the two missionaries were not to be found even by Simeon's efforts. In the Charter of 1793, Wilberforce asked to insert a clause owning the duty of England to seek the religious and moral improvement of the native inhabitants of the British dominions in India. The Commons passed it, but the company successfully opposed. Sir John Shaw, afterwards Lord Tegenmouth, succeeded Lord Cornwallis, an earnest Christian and a warm friend of missions. But he was compelled to recognise the impossibility, or at least the grave mischief, even from the missionaries' point of view, of using the authority of government in any degree in their favour. Lord Mornington, afterwards Marquis Wellesley, succeeding Sir John Shaw, was equally friendly in the work and even disposed to promote it in his public character. But troubles in the Madras presidency raised a panic at Calcutta, and the first years of this century, and particularly the two years before 1813, saw the Bengal government actually hostile to missionaries. The great Baptist scholars and evangelists, Carey, Marshman and Ward, could live and work only at Sarampur, a Danish station near Calcutta. The noble-hearted American, Judson, in 1812, had no sooner landed than he was ordered away, and he crossed the Bay of Bengal to live and die as the evangelist of Burma. But happier days were at hand. The efforts of Wilberforce and his Clapham friends at last succeeded, and the Charter of 1813 provided for a bishopric at Calcutta and for the freedom of missionary enterprise in all the territories of the company. This brief sketch will serve at least to explain why Simeon, in his long care for India, sent out chaplains rather than missionaries. The one missionary proper among his followers was William Jowett, B.D., 10th Wrangler in 1810, and fellow at St. John's. He went to the Levant in September 1815 and laboured in Syria and Palestine till 1830. But Buchanan, Corrie, Martin, Tomlinson, Howe, Dealtree, all were chaplains. The reason was evident. Missionaries in British India, at the best, would have laboured under severe restrictions. Chaplains had a status in which they could at least learn the native tongues and translate the scriptures without political interference. From 1786 to 1836, India was near indeed to Simeon's heart. India, then more distant in respect of communication than the remotest depths of darkest Africa, now are. In 1813, at the critical time of the renewal of the Charter, he writes to Thomason, then in India, On the subject of facilitating the diffusion of Christian light in India, there are going to be petitions from all quarters. Vast opposition is made to it, Lord Castlereagh is adverse to it, examinations are making in relation to it at the bar of the House of Commons, Hastings is very averse. In 1814, he discusses with Thomason the use of the Quran and the Shasta in missionary schools, and agrees with him that it is perfectly right, and further tells him that the directors had entered a philippic for you, but it was stopped by the Board of Control. 
1820 he is writing to him about new developments of work. I have received your reports and first fruits of the labours of your tract society. What a glorious work it is to see so much talent called forth and combined, in such a variety of ways, and to such a vast extent. All your proceedings about the orphan house and the kind of tracts to be written for the natives, and your editing of Euclid, my soul goes along with you in every atom of it. In 1835 he writes a careful and able letter to Wilson, Bishop of Calcutta, upon that grave problem for Indian missionaries, caste, and says that he would rather undermine the horrid structure than have it butted down at once. The scheme of 1787 proved for the present abortive, but it was the introduction to greater enterprises. Charles Grant came home in 1790 and pressed the missionary duty upon Archbishop Moore and the Bishop of London, and threw them upon the king. His appeals were met with a caution, which may now seem scarcely credible, but their effect was felt when Wilberforce agitated the matter in Parliament in 1793, and what was most important of all just then, the souls of the wise and good men who at Cambridge and Clapham thought and acted with Wilberforce were effectually set on fire with what may be called the missionary consciousness. They resolved that something extensive and systematic should at last be attempted in the English church for the evangelization of the heathen and Mohammedan peoples. Already there existed the great societies for the propagation of the gospel and the promotion of Christian knowledge. But their appointed field was the British colonies, not the pagan world as such. The admirable work of the London Missionary Society had recently been begun, but its constitution was unsectarian, and its Anglican members found that it would be better for all parties that the ecclesiastical difference should be recognized candidly, while personal Christian friendship and all possible cooperation on parallel lines should be maintained. So the thought of a society within the Church of England with a purely missionary purpose rose in many minds, and the issue of it was the Church Missionary Society for Africa and the East, or as it was called in its first account, a society for missions to Africa and the East, instituted by members of the established church. Simmons' part in the origination of the CMS was important. In the spring of 1795, he was present at a clerical meeting at Rawsby in Lincolnshire, where the disposal of a bequest of £4,000 left for religious purposes was debated, and some suggested its use for missions. In September, at the same place, the question was opened again, and Simeon tabulated with characteristic precision the arguments on both sides, which left the matter still uncertain. In February 1796, the subject came before the eclectic, this was a clerical society, it still exists, meeting in London, and the rendezvous of such men as John Venn, Richard Cecil, Thomas Scott, and Josiah Pratt. At that February meeting, Simeon reported the bequest, and a conversation followed, hesitating in its tone and without direct results, the fear of episcopal disapproval and of a seeming interference with old societies was so strong. But the discussion helped to keep the question alive, and three years later, March 18, 1799, a more resolute and effectual treatment of it was possible. Simeon had been expressly asked to attend the eclectic, and Charles Grant was there also as a visitor. Fourteen members were present. Mr. Venn opened the discussion by insisting upon the duty of doing something for the conversion of the heathen. Mr. Charles Grant urged the founding of a missionary seminary. The Reverend Charles Simeon, with characteristic distinctness of purpose and promptitude of zeal, proposed three questions— what can we do? When shall we do it? How shall we do it? 1. What can we do? 
We cannot join the London Missionary Society, yet I bless God that they have stood forth. We must now stand forth. We require something more than resolutions, something ostensible, something held up to the public. Many draw back because we do not stand forward. 2. When shall we do it? Directly, not a moment to be lost. We have been dreaming these four years while all England, all Europe has been awake. 3. How shall we do it? It is hopeless to wait for missionaries. Send out catechists. The result of this meeting was a general consent that a society should be forthwith formed by inviting a few of those upon whose concurrence in their own views they could rely, and that a prospectus of their proceedings should be afterwards prepared, and that then their plans should be laid before the heads of the church. The next meeting of the eclectic was devoted to the same subject, and the rules of the proposed society were considered and settled. On the 12th of April a meeting was held at the Castle and Falcon Inn, Aldersgate Street, for the purpose of instituting a society amongst the members of the established church for sending missionaries among the heathen. The Reverend J. Venn was in the chair and detailed the objects of the meeting. Sixteen clergymen and nine laymen were all that composed that small assembly, but the blessing of God was manifestly with them in their work of faith and labor of love. The Society for Missions to Africa and the East, then formally established, grew and advanced like a grain of mustard seed. It is a great tree now, as religious enterprises go. It receives an annual revenue of nearly a quarter of a million, gathered to a very large degree from the alms of the poor. It circles the earth with its missions from New Zealand and Japan, westward to the Pacific seaboard of North America. When every year, as May returns, the Church of St. Bride in Fleet Street can scarcely receive the congregation, mainly clerical, which meets from every part of England for the annual sermon, and next day the Strand is twice crowded with the multitudes who assemble at the doors of Exeter Hall for the annual meetings, it is manifest that the cause of missions is a reality to innumerable hearts, and that this particular agency is a great power in that cause. The same impression is made when the visitor passes from room to room of the Society's house in Salisbury Square off Fleet Street and listens to the deliberations of the little Parliament of the Committee, interrupted from time to time by solemn prayer as some question of special gravity arises. And it is deepened as he hears or knows of the always increasing frequency in which offers for missionary service are received at that house from men of energy and culture, asking to be sent where they are most wanted, but with a preference for the place of greatest self-sacrifice. And perhaps he is present at some dismissal or valediction when fifty or even a hundred missionaries at once, men and women, recruits and veterans, are sent forth to their work with the prayers and blessings of a large assembly. All this stirs the soul and is a living evidence of Christianity, but it is even more strongly moving and reassuring to think of those incidents of 1799 and of the years just before and after. That memorable meeting of the eclectic was summoned when, between the Nile and Marengo, England was in the midst of the universal war, when the century in tempest vanished and the next in carnage stalked behind. And it was a meeting of men who, for the most part, were held of little account in either the world or the church. Yet they were equally sober and confident in the name of God, and he has justified their act of faith. The first secretary of the new society was Thomas Scott, then chaplain of the Locke Hospital, once an almost Sicinian curate, eager only to study, 
then gently led by John Newton to adore his Redeemer, and at this time already a strong and patient leader in Christian enterprises. Just before one of the first small annual meetings of the society, a young clergyman asked Scott, a little carelessly, how they were getting on with money and men. We have collected about £1,200, was the answer, and we have hopes of an offer of service from two German students. A smile came into the questioner's face, and Scott turned solemnly upon him. Young man, you don't believe in this work, but if you live to be as old as I am, mark the word, you will see our missionaries enter China and Japan, regions then hermetically sealed, as Japan continued to be for sixty years. The prophecy proved true, and the story was told me by a friend who had heard it from a venerable pastor, once the incredulous young questioner of Thomas Scott. Simeon preached the second annual sermon of the Society at St. Anne's Blackfriars, June 8, 1802. The text was from the Philippian epistle, where the apostle points to the infinite humiliation of the Son of God as the supreme example of unselfish toil and sacrifice. I give one brief quotation. It may be said, perhaps, why are we to waste our strength upon the heathen? Is there not scope for the labours of all at home? I answer, it is well for us that the apostles did not argue thus, for if they had not turned to the Gentiles till there remained no unconverted Jews, the very name of Christ would probably long since have been forgotten amongst men. Besides, the more our love abounds towards the heathen, the more will the zeal of others be provoked for the salvation of our neighbours, and the more confidently may we hope for the blessing of God upon their pious endeavours. Let then all excuses be put away, and let all exert themselves at least in prayer to the great Lord of the harvest, and entreat him day and night to send forth labourers into his harvest. In 1817 I find record of the dismissal of seventeen missionaries of the society, all Germans, setting sail for their fields of labour. Simeon gave the farewell address. In 1818 he rejoices to think of ladies at work in India as in England. In the same year, in November, he sends to Thomason the news of the first church missionary meeting in Cambridge. You will be surprised to hear that we have just had a public meeting for the missionary society. I trembled when it was proposed and recommended the most cautious proceedings. There were present about 900 persons and 120 gown. The meeting was very solemn, the Queen's, Queen Charlotte's, death being announced in the papers that morning. I subjoin the close of that letter, though the subject is not in its place here. As for my church, there is nothing new. Those who so greatly distressed me are gone, and my church is sweetly harmonious. As for the gownsmen, never was anything like what they are at this day. I am forced to let them go up into the galleries, which I never suffered before, and notwithstanding that, multitudes of them are forced to stand in the aisles for want of a place to sit down. What thanks can I render to the Lord for a sight of these things? I am ready to sing my ancestor's song. Luke 2. Simeon's work for India, though it was thus so closely connected with the origin of a great missionary society, was, however, chiefly done through the able and pious Cambridge men whom he recommended as chaplains to the East India Company. Without some record of them, no view of his religious leadership would be complete. Martin, Thomason, and their Indian brethren from Cambridge were living extensions of Simeon's faith and labour. But I keep this record for another chapter, and with it some account of other friends of Simeon's. 
Here, apropos of the Church Missionary Society, let me say a little of other similar works into which Simeon threw much zeal and effort. The British and Foreign Bible Society, and the Society for Promoting Christianity Among the Jews. The conversion of the Jews was perhaps the warmest interest in his life, in the way of extended religious enterprise. In May 1813, he tells Thomason that the Bishop of London is about to consecrate the new chapel which is building for the Jews' Society at Bethnal Green, and that the Archbishop of Canterbury had expressed regret at not having given them his countenance before. For this society I am much interested, being one of the trustees for the chapel. The laying of the first stone about three weeks ago was a most interesting scene. The Duke of Kent laid it, and Lord Erskine, Lord Dundas, Mr. Wilberforce, etc., assisted with a silver trowel. Other buildings will afterwards be added for the lodging and employing the children that have been baptised, and the adults that want employment. A rich Jew on the continent has been converted, and he is preaching among his brethren. He is a merchant, who has five different concerns in five different cities. This day brings me tidings of another rich Jew embracing the Christian faith. Oh, that the whole nation might remember themselves and turn to the Lord. Next year he is energetically at work, along with Mr. Lewis Way, over an important rearrangement of the management of the Jews' society which has fallen into some disorder. With a plan drawn up by Mr. Babington, he writes again to Thomason, I proceeded to town, but as that was only one plan, I drew up four others. One was discussed for five hours. To get every possible advice, we went to Mr. Wilberforce at Barham Court in Kent, and under his roof I formed a fifth. This was unanimously adopted, and the society is placed on a firmer basis than ever. I expect now that some of our higher churchmen will come in, and all the serious clergy throughout the land. In 1818 he describes one of the only two visits he ever paid to the continent. It was to Holland where he went, travelling with Mr. Marsh, the late Reverend W. Marsh, D.D., most lovable of men, to see with his own eyes the missions to the Jews in the Low Countries, and particularly to support and stimulate the work at Amsterdam. The later visit was to Paris in 1822, and the same cause was in his heart. On that occasion, by the way, he met the Duchesse de Broglie, Madame de Staël's gifted and eminently Christian daughter, the friend of Thomas Erskine of Linlathen. Quote, I opened to her, he writes, my views of the scripture system, and showed her that brokenness of heart is the key to the whole. End quote. There was a quote, Jews meeting at Mr. Way's, end quote, and among others present there, Simeon met Monsieur Maire d'Abignon, Protestant minister at Versailles, afterwards the historian of the Reformation. Literally to the last, the thought of the recovery of Israel to the divine Messiah was on Simeon's heart. As he lay on his deathbed in 1836, the annual Cambridge meeting of the society drew near, and he resolved to deliver his, quote, dying testimony to the immense importance of the cause, end quote, in a paper to be read at a gathering of undergraduates. Quote, I wish to show you, so the brief document ran, what grounds we have for humiliation in that we have been so unlike to God in our regard towards his fallen people. See Jeremiah 12, verse 7, and again Romans 11, verse 28. And to bring you into a conformity to God in relation towards them, so far as it respects your efforts for their welfare, and your joy in their prosperity. See Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 24, and again Jeremiah 32, verse 41. 
and lastly, see Zephaniah 3 verse 17, end quote. All the scriptures cited are dictated at full length in the paper. We may think how intense would have been Simeon's interest in the Jewish phenomenon of our day, the Judenhetzer of Germany and of Russia, and the steady flow of Jewish immigrants into Palestine, now at the rate of many thousands in a year, if these statistics are even moderately accurate. His part in the mighty enterprise of the British and Foreign Bible Society, founded in 1804, was chiefly that of the wise and energetic adviser, on the first introduction of the society into Cambridge, and the steady friend of its cause there afterwards. There were serious difficulties in the way when, in 1811, the first Bible meeting was proposed. Some influential seniors in the university were strongly adverse, and many of the undergraduates who usually followed Simeon were ready for an impatient assertion of their feelings and resolves. The narration as he writes it to Thomason is remarkable. Quote, I said in my last page that I would proceed to tell you about my sermons, but I have a matter of infinitely greater importance to communicate, and with that I will now proceed in a way of narrative. At the time I wrote my last sheet, some young men in the university were endeavouring to set forward a Bible society in Cambridge, and I had determined to call the attention of the seniors to it in my last sermon. But the young men, full of ardour, had gone to the vice-chancellor, Dr. Brown of Christ's, and to the Bishop of Bristol, Dr. Mansell, and to Dr. Milner, and some others to try to interest them. A great alarm was excited through the university, and every person without exception threw cold water upon it, from this principle that if they were suffered to proceed in this way about the Bible, they would soon do the same about politics. This so discouraged me that I almost determined to blot out what I had written, but as I had written it for God, I at last resolved to deliver it for God, in hopes that God might yet do something by it. My view was to the seniors only. I never dreamed of its being serviceable in any other way, but how unsearchable are the ways of God. The young men bowed with perfect willingness to me, and suffered me to draw a line around them, beyond which they were not to move. They drew back and committed everything to their seniors, having indeed professed a willingness to do so from the beginning, but manifestly determined to have more hand in it than would perfectly consist with academic discipline. When their readiness to recede was known, instantly Dr. Jowett, Mr. Farish, Mr. John Brown of Trinity, and myself stood forward. Mr. F. went to get the sanction of the Vice-Chancellor, who, though he could not say he approved of the measure, gave his consent that a meeting should be called of the university, town, and county for the purpose of establishing a society. End quote. The troubles were not at an end, however. Herbert Marsh, then Margaret Professor, afterwards Bishop of Petersburg, no admirer of Simeon's, was decidedly hostile to the Bible Society on the ground of its independence from the Church, and he, quote, with incredible industry, end quote, circulated a strong printed statement of his objections in and around Cambridge. No head of a college would promise to attend the meeting, not even Milner of Queen's, quote, unless the Bishop of Bristol would, end quote, and the Bishop of Bristol hesitated because, quote, it was in the Bishop of Ely's diocese, end quote. The meeting had been announced, and it was close upon the day what was to be done. Simeon owns that he, quote, would at that time have given a large sum of money that we had not stirred at all, and so would my colleagues, and if it had been possible to have recalled the letters and notices, we should have done it, end quote. But it was not possible. 
Haply, in this strait, so difficult to be understood now, but so grave as things were eighty years ago, unlooked-for support was promised. Bishop Mansell and Dean Milner reconsidered their scruples and came forward, and a great and successful meeting was held. I find it noticed in Cooper's Annals of Cambridge as the last public event of 1811. Quote, the Cambridge Auxiliary Bible Society was established at a crowded and unanimous public meeting held at the Town Hall on the 12th of December. The Earl of Hardwick was in the chair. Amongst the speakers were Lord Francis Godolphin Osborne, MP for the County, Reverend Dr. E. D. Clark, Professor of Mineralogy, Reverend William Farish, M.A., Professor of Chemistry, William Hollick, Esquire, Reverend Charles Simeon, M.A., Fellow of King's College, Dr. Isaac Milner, Dean of Carlisle and President of Queen's College, and Reverend William Daltrey, Fellow of Trinity College. The proceedings appear to have excited the most intense interest. End quote. Mr. Carras preserves a striking picture given him by an eyewitness, an undergraduate of that time, of Simeon's actions in private, when the juniors, eager for the meeting, were in the act of taking an unwise line of resistance to university authority. They formed a committee. It was happily proposed that its first act should be to send a deputation to Simeon. He was then in those rooms, which he had on the ground floor at the foot of the staircase nearest to Queen's, the interior of his study, his own form and manner, and the appearance of the whole group are before me at this time. The gentleness and delicacy and calm strength of his statements and reasoning quite surprised me. I was not prepared to expect that he could exercise so irresistible an influence, as it seemed to me, over the faculties and wills of others, and all without seeming to attempt any influence at all, but only to show how his own mind had been brought to the conclusion at which he arrived." It was not a time for the expression of his affections, as you know he was wont to express them, but the influence of his unexpressed affection was all-powerful, though it is likely that the parties before him perceived not the subtle influence of that secret spell which was gradually overmastering their previously settled resolution, for it must be remembered that no one of the three had come with any wavering of mind as to the right course, but only in deference to my urgent representations that it was not just for them to decide without personal conference with him from whom I had my information and my views. I sat in astonishment. I could have wept for joy and wonder. The effect was decisive upon two of my colleagues. From that hour no further question was entertained as to the juniors acting alone. No more meetings were held even of our committee. The whole was left with unhesitating confidence to the seniors. End of chapter 8